passage we're going to read this morning is from John chapter 1. You've read it before. I hope you have. It's a familiar passage. But I want to read it again to you this morning, and I want you to have that experience again, to experience something that was good and has only gotten better. So stand with me if you're physically able. John chapter 1, picking up in verse 14, where John declares, I think, one, not one of, the most amazing truth in all of Scripture, that the glory of God stepped out of the glory of heaven to dwell with us. Picking up in verse 14, this is what the Word of God has to say. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks, uh, ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The first chapter of John is packed with some of the most amazing statements in, in all of Scripture. Our passage today is, is one of those passages, and as I've already said, I think it is maybe one of the, or is the greatest. So in John chapter 1, verse 14, he declares that the Word, that is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. That God dwelt among us in the flesh. Now, the importance, the amazement, the awesomeness of this statement, frankly, cannot be overstated. You can't say too much about that. You can't overemphasize that. That is phenomenal. It is foundational. It is a big, big deal. The Christian faith makes some amazing claims. We claim that Jesus, who is all God and all man, came and dwelt among us in the flesh. All God, all man. We, we believe that Jesus, who is all God and all man, man, lived without sin on this earth. We believe that Jesus, who is all God and all man, died on a cross as a substitute and as a sacrifice for sinful man's sin. And we believe that Jesus, who is all God and all man, was put in the grave dead, but on the third day rose again. Now, you can reject those claims, but you cannot sort of have a casual relationship with those claims. They're either true, and if they are, then gloriously uh, indeed. But if, but if you say, well, I'm not sure, there's no casualness about it. There's no halfway about it. Those are fantastic claims. Those are amazing claims. And they're not claims that you can sort of take some and not the other. They require you to either believe in faith or reject them. These claims are central and fundamental to Christianity. If you deny one, you deny them all. If you deny them, then you deny the very foundation of our faith. Other religions have prophets, but no other religion claims that God himself dwelt among us. 
Other religions claim to have great moral leaders and teachers, but none claim that God himself lived perfectly among us so that he could be a sacrifice for our sins. And friends, none but Christianity claim that Jesus physically died for our sin and three days later physically rose again. Now, John would say more about how Jesus worked to save us from our sin, but in these opening verses of his gospel, he makes clear that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He's the one that the prophets spoke about and that, 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 that the Jews have been waiting for for all these many years. And with the promised Messiah, Jesus is the one who in himself demonstrates the grace of God. And by demonstrating the grace of God, it is only through Jesus that you can come to know the Father. So for, for those of you who are taking notes, here are the three things I want to share with you this morning. Number one, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the promised Messiah. Number two, he, dem he is the demonstration of God's grace. And number three, that we might know God. Let's, pick with, let's begin with, he is the promised Messiah. I see that coming right off the page in the first part of verse 14. So draw your attention back to the scripture where it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But it goes on to say something else. Since the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the promised Messiah. And because he is the promised Messiah, in him he reveals the glory of God. Now, I've already said you can't make too much of, you can't overemphasize the importance, the significance, the, the wonder of what it means for God to dwell with us in the flesh. John's trying to capture some of that. And he says, he's, the, the Word became flesh and he dwelt among us and we have beheld his glory. Jesus reveals the glory of God. The implications of verse 14 are incalculable. God dwelt among us. Now in the days of Jesus, in the days of his birth, the anticipation of the coming of the Messiah was very much part of the Jewish culture. They were waiting, they were anticipating, they were hoping for the Messiah to come. But by those days, the, the, the understanding of what that meant had, had been weakened to something much less than what God had intended when he proclaimed it through the prophets. Through the prophets, God had declared that the Messiah would come to establish his kingdom forever in perfection. But in the days of Jesus, most hoped that this was a reestablishment of an earthly kingdom. Now, I was trying to help, trying to think through how I could connect that with us today. What would we hope for that the Jews were hoping for that would be similar? And this is, I think, the closest analogy that I can find. It would be that maybe our political party has been out of office or out of power for a long time, and you're hoping against hope that God's going to do something that gets your political power, party back in power again. Now listen, politics are politics, and you may not understand the particulars of the politics of the first century, but the same dynamics that work in their day work in our day. You want your side to be in power, and you want the other guy to be out of power. You got that? But listen to me carefully. There's coming a day when politics will pass away. Praise God for that. The kingdom of God is not about politics. 
The kingdom of God is not about earthly rule, about who's up and who's down. The kingdom of God is about God sitting on his throne, ruling in perfection with the Messiah. The Messiah did not come to get the Democrats, the, the, the Republicans, the Independent, the Libertarians up or down. No, he came to establish the kingdom of God that grows eternally and never, ever ends. So the Jews were waiting for something that was weak and man-made, but God was bringing something that was by the power of the living God. The Messiah would establish a new kingdom, but not a kingdom of man, but of God. A new kingdom, not a kingdom that would rise and fall, but an eternal kingdom. A new kingdom, not a kingdom ruled by man whose king, but rather whose king would be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus, the Messiah, was not a political figure, but God himself among men. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Beyond this, John declares that we have seen his glory. Now don't miss this amazing declaration of truth. Listen, just listen to this. God is with us. God in his fullness, dwelling and revealing. Friends, knowing the glory of God begins with knowing Jesus who became flesh, dwelt among us, and revealed the glory of God. You see, with the promised Messiah, Jesus, revealing the glory of God, what he does in that is he brings us near the presence of God. Now, a bit of an overview of Scripture here. I mentioned last week that Genesis 3 changed everything, and you can, you, can, you can blame almost everything that's wrong with this world today on Genesis 3. You're always pretty safe in that. But since Adam and Eve's sin in Genesis 3, God's presence amongst men had been physically separated from man. When God went with the people after he freed them from, from Egypt, from the Egyptian slavery, you may remember that his presence was with them, but it was physically separated from them. He dwelt within a tabernacle. Only Moses went in, and even then, only, on, only not just in a regular case, but went in to meet with God. Nobody else could go in. They were physically separated from God. Exodus chapter 25 tells us, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. That sounds good. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, and you shall make it. But then it goes on to say in the next chapter, and you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, and it shall be made of, uh, with cherubim skillfully worked into it, and you shall hang it on four pillars uh, of Acadia uh, overlaid with gold and with hooks of gold on four bases of silver, and you shall hang the veil from the clasp and bring the ark of the testimony in there with, within the veil, and the veil shall separate you from the holy place from the most holy. From the tabernacle to the temple, there were these physical, constant reminders that God, even as he dwelt among his people, he was separated in his holiness from the wickedness of his people. Since the first sin until the birth of Jesus, the presence of God was physically separated from man. Friends, it's important to understand that this separation was not the desire of God, but the consequence of sin. Listen to me carefully on this. 
God's desire was not to be separated from you. Read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. God created man to dwell with him. Read Revelation, and you see the outcome of the redemptive plan of God is that is we will dwell once again with him. But because of the consequence of Genesis 3, because of the consequence of your sin, God didn't reject us, we rejected God. And because of our sin, we could not in safety stand in his presence. Or read the Old Testament. Read the Old Testament of those who got close to the glory of God. They could not stand. Man's sin made it unsafe for man to stand in the presence of God who is holy. And so for the safety of man, God put barriers between his glory and man. Because of sin, man could not approach God. But in grace, God could approach man. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God surrendered the glory of heaven to dwell among man that he might bring us again into his presence. We could not go to him, but he came to us. Friends, sin has separated man from the glory of God. But Jesus came to dwell with us to make a way for us again to enter into his glory and to behold again his glory upon glory. Somebody say amen to that. That's a good word. And in his coming, this is number two, Jesus demonstrates the grace of God. Look at the second part of verse 14. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. Now, I want you to understand something. These are just not words that John threw together because they sounded nice together. John understood a couple of things, and the first thing is that the grace of God is known only in the truth of God. Verse 14 through 17 uses the word grace four times. So in verse 14, Jesus is full of grace. In 16, from fullness we have received grace upon grace. In verse 17, Jesus is the grace of God. From Jesus, we receive the grace of God. But notice there's another word connected to grace. The word truth, John connects to grace. So in verse 14, grace and truth. In verse 17, grace and truth. Now there's often an effort to claim grace without truth. Rightly, this is referred to as cheap grace. I call it granddaddy grace, Santa Claus grace. Granddaddy grace because my relationship with my granddad was very different than my relationship with my dad. My dad brought the law, amen? My granddad would say, oh, you didn't mean it, did you? Even when I did mean it. I say Santa Claus grace because, you know, the song says if, you're, if, you're, if he knows whether you're naughty or nice, and the assumption there is if you're naughty, you're not getting any presents. Friends, I'm going to tell you, there were some years I was not so righteous, and yet I got presents every year. That's grace without truth. And, and, and we, we like that, don't we? 
So, so as a culture, we want to talk about being right with God without understanding the truth of God. We want to talk about being right with God while ignoring God's truth about our own sin and about our own wickedness. There's often a, an effort to claim grace without truth. But friends, grace is never cheap, and grace is never divorced of truth. Grace is to receive something undeserved. Jesus was full of grace and full of truth. Grace is that man did not, grace in that man did not deserve anything other than the full, unmitigated wrath of God. That's the truth, friends. If you don't know Jesus today, the righteous thing that should happen to you is that you would be thrown into hell for all of eternity and the wrath of God poured out upon you without any mitigation. The truth is that Jesus exposed our sin, but in exposing our sin, he also exposed our need for salvation. The testimony of the Gospels demonstrate that early in the ministry of Jesus, there were, there were large crowds. And I get why there were large crowds, because everybody liked the show. He was healing people. Listen, if you heard somebody in town was raising dead people to life, wouldn't you show up and see what that looked like? I would. I know you would, because we all rubberneck around an ambulance and a fire truck. Or if somebody pulled on the side of the road, you're trying to see who it is that's getting a ticket. And so if, if there was somebody raising the dead, if there's somebody healing the, the, the blind and the deaf, we'd all show up to see, is this real? And when you notice in the early days of Jesus' ministry, there were crowds of people. But if you, as you read the Gospels, you'll notice the crowds get smaller and smaller and smaller. Now, what was happening? Jesus was teaching. And the more Jesus taught, the smaller the crowds became. Many were fascinated by his healings. Many were fascinated in the possibilities of a new political possibility. They thought maybe Jesus is the Messiah we've been hoping for, a political leader. Maybe he's going to bring our group back on top. However, the more Jesus taught, the smaller the crowds became because he was teaching on the kingdom of God. He was teaching on the sin of man. He was teaching on man's need for salvation and man's need for a once-for-all sacrifice for sin. He was talking about dying and rising again. He was talking about taking up your cross and following him. He was talking about the requirements of salvation, of believing faith and rejecting your, this worldly wickedness. You, can, you cannot understand the grace that Jesus provides without understanding the truth about sin and the condemnation that it brings. You can't understand the grace of Jesus unless you understand the truth of sin and the separation that it brings between us and God. You cannot understand the grace of God unless you understand that our flesh, that in our flesh we are totally unable to be righteous before a holy God. But in those truths, in those understandings, in that light of understanding, we come to behold the glorious grace of God that Jesus made a way for wicked sinners like you and me to step into the glory of God, not on account of our righteousness, but on account of His righteousness. Truth gives understanding of grace. Therefore, Jesus is both the testimony of the grace of God and the truth of God. Friends, I would also say to you that the grace of God is only, and I mean that with all the, the singularity, all the exclusiveness I can make, the grace of God is only experienced in Jesus. 
verse 16 says that from Jesus we receive grace upon grace. Now this means that, that Jesus is the unique channel of all God's material and spiritual blessings. Now, without getting too deep in the weeds here, there are certainly some of God's graces that are known um, by all men. The phrase that we often use for that type of grace is, is referred to as common grace. Common not meaning that it's less than, but it just means that it's experienced by all. So common grace is, is the goodness of God experienced by men, whether or not they acknowledge God. So just some common graces today. Husbands, if you love your wife and you enter into marriage in the faithfulness that God intended it to be, whether or not you honor God or acknowledge God, you'll receive some blessings in your marriage because of the way, because you're being biblical in your approach to marriage. Yes? Employees, if you go to work and, 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 and in your labor, you work in a way that's under the, as God intended it to be an offering as unto him, but, but whether or not you acknowledge God or not, but you give a good effort and, and, uh, and, and work well for those who you serve, there'll be some common grace to that. And in a larger sense, cultures and governments that, that organize themselves according to a biblical understanding of law, whether or not those, those people that run those governments or even the people that are governed by those governments acknowledge God, there's a common grace that comes along with that that, is, that, that, that reaps goodness and blessings for those nations. However, the fullness of God's grace, listen to me carefully, is only known through Jesus. The glory and presence of God is only known through Jesus. The goodness and kindness of God is only known through Jesus. The redemption and restoration of God is only known through Jesus. Salvation from sin is only known through Jesus. Everybody wants grace. That's not wrong. But friends, listen to me. You can only know the fullness of God's grace. You can only experience the grace of God through Jesus. One last thing. Jesus came in the flesh, dwelt among us, that we might know God. So look in verses 17 and 18. For good measure, we'll read 15. So John tells us about John the Baptist he's writing here and he says John the Baptist bore witness about him Jesus and crying out this was he of whom I said he he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me why does he say that John was born he had a beginning Jesus is eternal he has no beginning but he goes on and says verse 16 for from his fullness we have received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Now, maybe if you're just reading through this quickly, you might think, well, what do these things have to do with one another? He's talking about the grace that we received through Jesus. Why does he start talking about the law and Moses? And then why in the, what in the world is he talking about? Nobody's seen God. Well, 
What John is trying to communicate is that through Jesus are we able to come and know God. Now, a couple of things here. First of all, by the way, that would have been a bit shocking to those who lived in the first century who thought they knew God. <laughs> in fact, some of them thought they were right with God. But John says, no, the only way to truly know God, the only way to be truly right with God is through Jesus. So a couple of things here. Number one, only through Jesus do we come to know God in truth. Jesus came in the flesh to make a way for sinful men to be in the presence of and know God. I would imagine that many in the days of Jesus would argue that they in fact did know God. And their argument would be based on this. They would first of all say, we have the law of Moses and some of us are experts in the law of Moses. Others would say, we have the writings, the Psalms, Solomon, those sort of things. Others would say, we have the prophets and we know the prophets well and through all of these things we know God. Knowing God in truth is more than just knowing facts. Knowing God in truth is to know the fullness of the revelation of God. Now John acknowledges that the law was given by Moses. Not knocking that, not diminishing that. The law reveals the holiness of God. We're thankful for that. The law also, as its tutor, as a, acting as a tutor, reveals our sinfulness. Read the law. And one of the things you'll come to about the law is two things. I hope you'll come to these two things. Number one, you'll never be righteous, as righteous as God. And you'll, secondly, you'll constantly be, need, and be in need of a sacrifice to atone for your sin. The law was, had its purpose to reveal the glory of God and the sinfulness of man. But even the lawgiver, John acknowledges, even the lawgiver Moses, which in first century Jewish life, there's nobody bigger or better or greater than Moses. He's the lawgiver. Writer of the first five books of the Bible. Big deal. But he says, even Moses could not look onto the glory of God. So consider Exodus chapter 33. Where it says, Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and you will proclaim before, and, and, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. No one has seen the Father but Jesus. Jesus, who is God, in himself reveals the truth of God, the glory of God, the presence of God, the full revelation of God. Friends, to know the truth of God, you must know more than God's law. To know the truth of God, you must know God himself. And in order to know God himself, you must know Jesus. Jesus says to know me is to know the Father, and to know the Father is to know me. To know God, you must know Jesus. So to, to know God, through Jesus we know God in truth, and to know, to know, through Jesus we know God in fullness. In verse 18, John doubles down on the difference between knowing about God through the law and knowing God through Jesus. 
And he says, no one's seen him, as we just read. Not, not Moses, not the prophets, not even the writers of the Psalms or Solomon or anyone else. In the last words of the verse, John declares that he, speaking of Jesus, has made him known. Now, I don't think John is rejecting or devaluing the law or Moses or the prophets or the writings. I'm confident in that. But he is making clear that to know God in fullness is only through Jesus. So praise God for the, for the prophets and the law and the writings, but they're not sufficient to know the fullness of God. I personally love to teach and preach from the Old Testament. And I find it rather encouraging uh, to, to see how God has kept every promise. And one of the things I love to do is, is to study and read the progression of the promise of God. So you start, well, you can start away with, with the Noahic covenant, but, but really getting serious with the Abrahamic covenant and then to the Davidic covenant, how God is building upon each. And then when you get to the New Testament, oh, friends, when you read the first chapters of the Gospels, there's all kinds of references to the Old Testament because God is fulfilling all those promises that he's made. And I'm convinced that the more you understand the Old Testament, the brighter the glory of God will be as you read the New Testament. I would encourage every believer to become a student of the Old Testament that you, that you would better understand what God's doing in the New Testament. So study God's law. Study the prophets. Study the Psalms. Study the God's history in the, in the biblical histories. And all of these will bless your understanding of the New Testament. But let's be clear this morning. Listen to me. There is no substitute for knowing Jesus. In my, in my own life, I have known Bible scholars who, frankly, if they were here today, could speak to you at a much deeper, more thorough level on Bible histories and the law than I ever could imagine I could, even with much study. And yet, they don't know Jesus. And because they don't know Jesus, they're not preaching from this pulpit. The law reveals the holiness of God. The prophets reveal what God has done and is still to do. The histories reveal how God has worked in history. The writings declare the glory and the goodness of God, but only in Jesus do we know the fullness of God, the fullness of his character, the fullness of his grace, the fullness of his love, the fullness of his faithfulness, the fullness of his long-suffering, the fullness of his glory. Friends, Jesus is the Messiah, fully God, and fully revealing the fullness of God. You want to know the Father? You must know Jesus. I love to read a biography, particularly presidential biographies. And if you're like me and you like to read a biography, you know that a, a good biography tells the narrative of someone's life in such a way that that the reader feels like they know them when they come to the end of the book. Now, when you get deep in the weeds of biographies, some of them get real specific. So when you're, when you, I, I was reading something the other day on, on, on the, the, the theologian Augustine. And Augustine wrote volumes and volumes and volumes. So this, this, this writer was just focusing on a very narrow slice of his early life. So sometimes a biography will look at just a particular section of someone's life or a particular part of someone's life. So their political career or their, or their, or their family life or, or something like that. 
But the truth is, no matter how well it is written, no matter how, uh, how, how, how gifted the writer is, all biographies are limited by what information is available to the biographer. Now, sometimes the, the subject has written many works and given many speeches that provide material for the biographer to work with. And other times the biographer has to, to rely on secondary sources, people who knew them and can report about what they did and sometimes just make guesses about what they did. But it doesn't really matter how thorough, well-researched, or well-documented a documentary is. There will always be a group of people who find the biography less than complete. There'll always be a people, a group that say, doesn't quite capture it, doesn't quite get who this person is. These would be the people who actually knew the subject. Because you can read about somebody, you can become an academic expert on a character, but that does not equate knowing something. You can read about someone, but that's different from knowing someone. Here's the invitation of the gospel. The invitation of the gospel is not to read about Jesus. The invitation of the gospel is not to know some facts about God. No, the invitation of the gospel is to come and know God himself. The word became flesh and dwelt among us revealing the glory of God that we might behold his glory and that we might know him in grace and truth that we might not only know Jesus but through Jesus and in Jesus experience the grace of God and know God oh friends this is more than a biography this is inviting you into the presence of to know in all the intimacy of a personal relationship For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening, and until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the Kingdom.